0: We study billionaires, and this is episode 118 of the Investors Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons, they'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you
1: actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Brotherson.
0: Hey, how you all doing out there? This is Preston Pish and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host Stig Brodersen out in Seoul, South Korea. And uh, today we are accompanied by our good friends in the Mastermind Group. We got Hari Ramachandra, who's with us. He's out in Silicon Valley. He runs BitsBusiness.com. He's also an executive over at LinkedIn. And we have Toby Carlau. He's from Carbon Beach Asset Management, the acquirer's multiple. Author of Deep Value. Toby, great to have you here with us. Hari, great to have you here with us. We don't have Colin with us this week. He ran into a little bit of a scheduling conflict, but he'll be with us next quarter's mastermind meeting. And so we're here to uh, talk about the uh, fourth quarter and what's changing. I, I think there's probably a lot for us to discuss here. So I'm just going to open it up to the group and see if anybody has something that they want to say to kick things off.
2: Yeah, so one thing that was really surprising to me here in Q4 of 2016, that was Warren Buffett's latest purchase in the airline industry. And I guess for everyone that's been following Warren Buffett for some time, you would say that Warren Buffett and airlines, that really doesn't make any sense. So I need to tell this because Warren Buffett really got burned with an airline investment in the 1990s. And back then, he actually blamed the industry for notoriously having low profitability. He vowed not to invest in the death trap sector again, as he called it. So I think whenever I heard that, I was like, for someone who's been saying that about the industry, he's even called himself an aeroholic that set up a toll free number for himself he could call to talk himself out of such temptations. It didn't make any sense to me at all that he would be investing in airlines. So one of the things I did was I had the chance to speak to Toby about this. And this was something that was really, really cool because Toby was not surprised at all. So with this introduction, Toby, could you perhaps share with the audience why you weren't surprised at all that Warren Buffett bought into airlines?
3: So Acquire is Multiple. The site has a screen that just lists uh, in various different universes, the cheapest companies in the US. And in that screen for a long time, I had seen out of 30 stocks, it was Alaska, Delta, United, Southwest, and something else that escapes me right now, Spirit or something like that. And I had been asked about it. I spoke in New York at nicer, maybe four or five months ago and somebody asked me about the fact that there are all of those airlines in and would I buy them? And I said, the quant in me is compelled to buy them, but I don't know that the special situations go, I would necessarily buy them. But they have a lot of interesting characteristics. They do have a lot of cash on the balance sheet. They have got offsetting debt and they're kind of heavily levered to oil and gas prices because jet fuel is such a huge input cost for them. One thing that I fly a lot and every flight that I'm on is jam-packed. So they've got two things that are in their favor at the moment and that's low oil prices and they're very, very busy. So it always makes me a little bit worried that that's kind of closer to being peak cycle than it is to being trough cycle.
2: And Toby, one of the things that we're seeing in the LR sector right now is consolidation. And you also have lower capacity. So I don't know if that's why all the planes are so so cramped at the moment. But the economic textbooks would say that, well, it makes a lot of sense that if we have consolidation and we can raise prices and we have better margins. But we also had did an interview with West That was actually something we did a few weeks ago, but it hasn't been published. And he talked about regulation, that when you see something like that, well, that might seem like a good situation right now, but if you see too much consolidation, a lot of that profit to gain that would be taken away by the regulators. so Toby, do you see any sign of that in the airline industry right now because I guess that would be a concern?
3: I'm probably not close enough to say yes, but I, I think that the issue for them has been antitrust, but I think they're at the stage, and I wrote something about this on Twitter or my blog, and I got contacted by. Many, many people letting me know that it wasn't in fact, or in their estimation, it wasn't in fact Buffett who had bought these stocks, but the two guys who invest with him because they were smaller purchases, and Buffett has to make the bigger purchases. I don't know whether that's sort of important or not, but they had very attractive characteristics. At about the same time, somebody else sent me an email saying Charlie Munger had been, somebody had asked him that question. His response had been something along the lines of, Railways had been a really bad business while they were trying to compete vigorously with each other, but at some stage they became a much better business once the sort of the building out had stopped and it became more of a monopoly type business. It became a better business, and that's and Berkshire has now, of course, got the gigantic BNSF. He speculated that maybe the same thing was happening in airlines, but he wasn't willing to say yes or no to Berkshire investing at that stage.
2: Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point, Toby, because you're definitely right. I mean, each of these positions, they're no more than 1% of the portfolio. So, right now, Berkshire Hathaway, the portfolio is $128 billion. And for instance, the investment that they did in Delta, even though it it got a lot of media exposure, it's only $250 million. So, I'm happy you remember to say that, Toby. It's probably not Warren Buffett who's been doing this, but Berkshire Hathaway and Ted and Todd, his uh, portfolio managers.
4: Hey, guys, this is Harry. Toby, you brought up an interesting point, the parallel between the railroad industry and the airlines industry and how consolidation brings sanity to an industry. However, the question I have in mind is, does the airline industry has the same kind of moat that a railroad has? Because in order to lay a track, there is for each mile, there is a lot of hurdles, regulation hurdle, cost and stuff like that. But that's missing in airlines. How long do you think this sanity will last
3: airline industry? My favorite line about airlines comes from Richard Branson, where he says, if you want to become a millionaire, start out as a billionaire and buy an
2: airplane.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The point is apt that it's not as moaty as the railroad industry. I don't think it's quite as easy as you do require an enormous amount of capital. You do need the slots for the planes at the airport. You need to be able to order them. It's heavily regulated and it requires an enormous amount of advertising. But then that's been the case at every stage along, you know, at least since Virgin launched in the 80s, I think it was. And I don't think that that's changed necessarily. So evidently some people can. It is possible to launch an airline to compete, even though I I wouldn't really want to do it. I think it'd be a tough ask.
2: Very, very interesting discussion, guys. And it will be really, really interesting to see over the next few quarters what will happen with the Berkshire's position in these airline companies. But let's go on to the next topic. And Hari, I hope you will kick this one off.
4: Sure. I'll be happy to. And Stig, this question is based on your recent podcast with Jim Rickards, where you discussed gold. And I did some research based on the information I got from your podcast. Is gold really a good asset to hold in your portfolio? So these are the questions on my mind. And then based on your answers, I have some follow-up questions as well.
2: Yeah. I simply love this question, Hari. And I'm going to say, like, before I even respond, like, I probably have 10 questions for you because I think it's so interesting that a lot of people talking about gold at the moment, But they talk about it many different ways. So I think it's also important for people to understand that whenever they're listening to this, and correct me if I'm wrong, Harry, but you're not talking about buying into gold at say eleven sixty and then sell at thirteen hundred. You're basically looking at gold as a hedge, like a currency hedge of the entire system. Isn't that what you what you're saying?
4: You're exactly right. I'm not looking at gold as a trading position but I'm looking at gold as an insurance. And in fact, I did some research as I had discussed with you offline. And I recently put a post on my blog, basically summarizing all my research. I'll be happy to share with you to provide in the show notes for your audience. But what is confusing when you talk about gold is that it's a very polarizing topic. You have people who are like either passionately for gold or against gold. There's a lot of people who recommend gold also are serial book publishers. like They're publishing books very frequently about gold. So that makes me a little apprehensive because I don't know whether they're recommending something or they're trying to sell their books. So I'll be happy to know your thought and Toby's thought on this topic.
2: I'm curious to hear Toby's thoughts too.
4: Well, I
3: know why they publish lots of books about them. When I was publishing regularly on Greenbacked, anytime I put gold in the title of a post, it was worth two or three times the normal traffic. And if you can get Buffett commenting on gold, that's the holy grail. That's like 10x the traffic. (laughs) Because people want to hear what Buffett has to say about gold. And all he has to say about gold is that it's kind of a pet rock and it sits there and it looks at you. And he's not a fan. And I've done a lot of research in it, but I just don't think I can ever get to the stage where I have an edge over anybody else in it. For me, the only edge that I'm ever going to have is in Deeply undervalued stocks with some sort of corporate action catalyst, and, and that's a really narrow, tiny little sliver of the world to kind of make your living. So I'm kind of an interested observer, and I, I read a lot about it, but I don't have any—I don't have any view that everybody else doesn't already have.
2: I really like that you say that because, Toby, that really shows that you are a Buffett guy, right? Like you're staying within the circle competences, and you're not saying, "I wish I could be the tenth best guys at." Bonds and the 10 best guy at gold. Why can't I just focus on deep value investing? That's basically what you're saying. So that's a really buffered way of thinking. And I think that before I insinuate in any way that gold might be a good asset class to hold, I just wanted to put it out there that it's probably a good idea for everyone to stay within their circle of competence. I think the discussion about gold is really, really interesting. And I think that whenever we started the podcast, and this is something that we have revisited a few times. I was definitely of the opinion that gold would probably be the stupidest thing ever to invest in. I still hold that opinion. And I would like to elaborate. I still think it's not a good thing to invest in, but that doesn't mean it's not necessarily a good hedge, depending on how you are looking the world. So we primarily have listeners in the West. And being Danish, I think I have a very similar view that gold is like a pet rock or whatever Warren Buffett calls it. But the perception, living now here four months in Korea and studying the economic policies and economics in general for major Asian countries, is just very evident that the perception of gold is very, very different. And Asian countries have been used to holding gold as a way of storing value, not growing the value of anything, but storing the value because there's been a lot of good reasons because of a lot of horrible events, why it might be a good idea to hold that in gold, inflation, currencies being taken back by the government, a lot of things that makes a lot of sense that you can more or less trust gold. And again, as a currency, not as an investment. Toby has a big grin on right now, so I'm very curious to hear what he has to say.
3: So, hearing stick talk then just reminded me of this post on greenbacked, going back now to November 10, 2009, Buffett evidently had appeared on CNBC's Squawk Box with Becky Quick. She'd asked him about gold, and he had responded something along the lines of, you got to dig it up out of the ground in South Africa and transport it to the US, and you put it back in the ground in the Federal Reserve in New York. (laughs) And uh, he didn't think that was a great asset to invest in when he knows that Coca-Cola and Wells Fargo, maybe that was a bad example, but they're going to be making money down the track. They're both still here. So I guess that he was right about that. But it reminded me of this great. Quote, and this is Buffett in his 1979 letter to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. I'll just read it out because I think it's pretty funny. One friendly but sharp-eyed commentator in Berkshire has pointed out that our book value at the end of 1964 would have bought about one half ounce of gold. And 15 years later, after we've plowed back all earnings, along with much blood, sweat and tears, the book value produced will buy about the same half ounce. So basically, very early on in his career... When he was doing his very best investing off a fairly low capital base, he got 15 years of the blood, sweat, and tears of the greatest investor in the world, and he just broke even with gold over that period.
2: Yeah, wow. That was really interesting and really surprising. I was not aware of that for sure.
0: You know, it's interesting your comment too about when he was making the comment in 2009, because gold did what, a 300% run after he would have made those comments?
4: And also, like, you know, what Toby brought up kind of you know, in a to The issue with gold is that the value of gold is truly in the eye of the beholder. And it's really not possible to calculate the intrinsic value of an asset like gold, but it's basically what's the next guy willing to pay. Buffett also has a quote where he says that gold is a good way of going long on fear, but it has been a pretty good way of going long on fear from time to time. But you really have to hope people become more afraid in a year or two in order to make good return on your investment. So this shows maybe, Kristen, since you said like from 2009 to 2016, gold has gone up by a huge percentage. Does it mean that there is a lot of fear in the market still, even after the stock market going up as much as it has did?
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
1: The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the US, they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable, heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. In
0: the last three years, four years, it's done really poorly. But from 2009 to when did gold hit its top? 2012, 2013 ish, somewhere around in there. It did really, really well, it had an amazing run. Now, I guess I see it a little bit differently than the way that Hari just described it, which I've heard that description of the value of gold a lot. You know, there was a thing I read on Ray Dalio's blog relating to how he views the value of gold and how it's looked at in comparison to credit and how the central banks manipulate the monetary baseline and how they expand the amount of currency his description of this for me was crystal clear how this operates. It made so much sense to me. So like now, Stig and I, although we've been talking to Jim Rickards and a lot of other people about how it's starting to make more sense and how the Fed's going to have to do something to expand the balance sheet during the next credit contraction, whenever that happens. But between now and that point, I don't understand why somebody would want to own it at this point. But I do understand why people would want to own it in a five or ten year horizon. It makes total sense to me why they'd want to own it in that time horizon. So for me, I, I guess I look at it a little bit differently than the way Hari described it. But I am definitely no expert on gold, but that's how I understand it at least.
4: Kristen, I agree with you about uh, time horizon regarding holding gold, and also like you know, that's one of the observations that I have too. Is Ray Dalio is the best among. All the folks who talk about gold in terms of explaining stuff about how gold is prized and the importance of gold in a portfolio.
0: So, one of the things I want to talk about. So, I had this interview with Bill Miller. I mean, legend out of Lake Mason, chairman. He was managing $75 billion. And we had a podcast interview with him. And I'll tell you, he had some amazing comments with respect to the spreads when you're looking at equities, the bonds. And so right now here in December, to give everyone the date, it's the 12th of December, 2016. And the 10-year treasury is having a huge monumental sell-off and we're at 2.4% on the 10-year treasury. But when you look at stocks, the Cape Schiller on stocks is around a 27. So we're, we're a little bit over a 3% return in the stock market right now. So Bill's comment to me was, "Hey, as long as you have, you know, call it 6 or 0.6% or 0.7% spread between stocks and bonds, he really felt like there is more to run on this." The thing that that really stuck out in my head with the interview was he told me he said, "If you could get a P multiple of 35 back in 2000 when interest rates were 5 or 6%," He said, what in the world makes you think that you can't get there now when interest rates are at 3%? And for me, I I was just kind of like, I had nothing to say to that. I really didn't. I had nothing to say to it. And I said, well, you know, once we get to this parity point where let's let's just say equities and bonds are at parity of call it 2.7 or or 3.0 in the percentage wise on the yield then what do we see at that point? You know, And he wasn't so quick to buy into the fact that this thing could come unravel. And so I didn't really have anything to say. I just want to bring it up to you guys and hear your thoughts.
3: Oh man, I, I hate to be the guy to kind of throw this one out there. but So I think what Bill is describing is known as the Fed model. And that's the surplus of return that you get for investing in equities over the 10 year or whatever sort of There's no real agreement on what the exact Fed model is. There are quite a few different models out there, but basically, it's the idea that you get more yield for investing in equities because they're riskier than you do investing in bonds because they're less risky. So the Federal Reserve loves this idea, and I'll often point to the Fed model. Dr. John Hussman has actually tested it. And if you look at how predictive it is, so at various times, the equities are, in terms of yield, yielding much more than... Bonds and that's the time to buy equities, that makes perfect sense, and vice versa. Then, when they're not yielding very much, maybe you want to hold bonds at that stage. He's tested and he said it doesn't work, it's not predictive. And the reason, well, not so much the reason, but he's, the conclusion that he has drawn is that the addition of the bond rate to that question is sort of, it doesn't add any information, it sort of destroys information. All of the information that you need for the return on equities is already embedded into equities. So, when equities are yielding a lot, equities tend to do very well. When equities aren't yielding very much, they tend to not do very well. And it's not the size of the premium over rates. It's just, it's it's an absolute kind of measure. You can find that on his website, probably from 2012-ish, 2013. But it's, it's pretty clear that that's the case.
0: I know Jesse Felder destroys that argument as well. He has a couple posts on it as well, Toby. You know, the thing that Bill was saying was he felt like this could turn into be a potential bad thing with all these rates coming up if it happens too quickly. He said that's the thing that he was personally watching was if it keeps ratcheting up as far as the sell off in the bond market and it's happening slowly and somewhat controllably. He's like that money has to go somewhere. And he says, and I think that people don't realize how much money that is that's coming out of that bond market and where they might not realize it's it's going to go, which in his opinion was going to be the stock market. So He feels like that in the short term, he's obviously talking in the short term here, that has a lot more to potentially run in the coming months as long as that expectation continues to persist and that this sell-off in the bond market continues to occur. That's where he thinks the money's going to go. Now, you get into the point, and this is what I was really pressing him on, is like where and when do we get to that point where too much is really starting to be priced into the discount rates of, of the stocks at that point? And you really start to see a major downturn in the equity market because, I mean, you guys all know when you divide by these higher interest rates and these discount rates, it's a total massacre in the value of the stock. So he didn't really know where that point was at. The one comment that he made to me was, he said, well, look at the bond yield curve. He said, it's not flat. It's not even close to being flat. You know, and, and for anybody who isn't familiar with the bond yield curve, he, what he's saying is that the short-term interest rates are, are still extremely low compared to the long tail of the interest rates, which are significantly higher. He says, when that starts becoming flat or inverted, that's when it starts getting really scary. I didn't really know what to take away from that. I mean, this guy's a freaking legend. <laughs> you know, At the end of the day, he's been through a lot more than I've ever seen or, or dreamt about. So those are some of the comments. I'm just really curious how you guys are seeing it as well.
3: I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with what he's saying. Though. It, one other thing, I was just making the point that the yield on equities in relation to the yield on bonds isn't predictive. It's not to say that the direction of the yield on bonds isn't predictive. It, it, it must be like, as a matter of logic, it must be when you have very low yields, every other asset, the cash flows from other assets become more valuable. When you have very high yields, the hurdle other assets to get over is very high, so they should be worth less. That's why when you see in the 1980s with very high interest rates, it must be the case that other assets aren't worth as much at that stage. And I think Buffett has made a similar comment where he says interest rates act like gravity on assets when they go up. It's something that I've tested a little bit and you, you could find in most of history, most of modern history in the US starting in sort of the maybe the 40s or the 50s you know, you had pretty good interest rates. You had four or five or 6%. And so if your equities were yielding less than that, you could get more yield switching into rates. And that was a good trade.
0: I want to go back to something we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, because I'm really curious about the filtering with the airline stock. I hate to bring something up again that we had already hashed out, but I'm curious, how long were you seeing these hitting your filter, Toby? How long before he made the position were you seeing these hit the filter?
3: It was a while. It was six months. Could have been something like that, and I, I was looking at them, feeling a little bit sick, because I've been raised on on Buffett as an investor. You know, I, I know how Buffett feels about airline stocks, and I know how I can see that the planes are full and that oil and gas is cheap, and that's the kind of thing that could trick a screen like mine that's really only looking for super cheap things. And so, when you're getting six positions in the screen, now it's become a very that's a material portion of the capital. Would be committed in a portfolio to that industry. Having said that, you know, they've worked really well. So it just, every time I, th- I try to outthink the screen, it just makes me look like a fool.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and Toby, it seems like it's really an industry bet that Berkshire Hathaway made. It doesn't seem to me like, because he bought into four different airline companies. And when I compare that to your screener, it's, it also seems like they're not necessarily going in and saying, this is the one that we expect to, to be the winner in industry. It seems like, they feel like the entire industry is undervalued, and they're gonna play that for you know whenever we see that mean aversion to the intrinsic value. Would you agree with that? That that is kind of like their train of thought in terms of buying into that class.
3: Yes, in the free screener, which is the largest one thousand, I can tell you the names right now. So, and they're all clustered together. They're still cheap. The two cheapest stocks aren't airlines, but the next lot are all airlines: Delta, JetBlue, United, Alaska. Southwest Spirit. I think that's the lot.
0: And Toby, what kind of yield are they priced at based on the EBIT or EBITDA to the enterprise value?
3: So they're ranging between Delta is the cheapest at 5.3, and that's about a roughly about a 20% magic formula earnings yield. And the most expensive, which is also, I think, the best, is Southwest. It's on a 7.3, which is about a 14% yield. Yeah. Wow. I think it's, it's not a bad bet, but it, as I say, everything's running for airlines at the moment.
2: Yeah. And it might also be so that it's not a position they want to hold for a long time. And I know that we're talking a lot about the general philosophy about holding a great stock forever. I don't necessarily think that's the case here. If you think about how much they have accumulated, so just take Delta, for example, they accumulate 250 million. The market cap for Delta right now is 37 billion. So it also seems like some of the positions or all the positions they're taking Unless they accumulate in those, it seems like smaller positions where they can make a profit because it's temporary undervalued, and then perhaps get out and reallocate to other equities at some later point in time.
0: Yeah. And Stig, you're saying 250 million is the position yes. that Berkshire exactly. took.
2: Yes, the Berkshire 250. So this is, this is just for Delta. It's 250 million out of 37 billion. So it's not necessarily as you've seen with some of the other bets that Warren Buffett has taken in, quote, Wells Fargo, Coca Cola and whatnot. I mean, it's somewhat easy for Berkshire to get out of this position.
0: Yeah. And so if we're going to even put that in a further context, if we take the market cap of Berkshire, what, what's the market cap of Berkshire? $350 billion? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if they took a, let's just say they took a $350 million position, that'd be 0.01% of their market cap. Just so people understand the big picture here. That's how big of a position they took, 0.01% of their market cap. So that's
3: how big a position I would recommend,
0: (laughs) but it's an interesting position because I think it's, it's showing you the mechanics of how they are making their selections in a market that is very expensive. So they're still buying their position size is minuscule compared to the 70 plus billion that they're sitting on in cash. Okay. Which is the really important position that they're sitting on because that's why they have 70 billion in cash in it compared to this 250 million dollar position. but it's fun to talk about this It's very interesting to see how they're making those selections when compared to all the other stocks that are on the market and I think Toby's assessment here as how they're valuing it is very important for people to pay attention to.
2: So I would really love to talk about what has happened in India recently. And I just want to give some background first, and then I would really like to hear your thoughts. So what the government decided to do is to take out the 500 and the 1,000 rupee out of circulation. And this is the two largest notes. And it's actually, just to give you something to compare it to, it's 86.4% of all the cash in circulation that you're just taking out. You're just taking it out. And... This is really big because depending on which country you live in, you might not be used to using cash. For instance, for me as a Dane, when I think back of my childhood, that was probably called 20 years ago. That was probably the last time I feel I used cash on a somewhat regular basis. I can definitely go a year or if not more without touching any kind of cash in Denmark. In the US, clearly that's more cash-based society, but it's really nothing compared to India cash is used for 98% of the transactions in India. This is the number of transactions, not the total volume of all all that settling cash, obviously. But that is how it works. And that was something that really surprised me. So this is a big change in the monetary system in India. So you might be thinking, why are they doing this? Why are they taking out 86.4% cash out of circulation? And there's a lot of reasons for this. One thing is that Apparently there is some counterfeit money over there, and by forcing everyone to deposit what they have and to exchange that to other notes, they're basically cornering the criminals. So th- that's more of the organized crime, but they're also targeting normal people, if you want to call it like that, that can't really show where they got the money from because a lot of people in India they're simply paying cash and it's not registered in a way. So by that they're also forcing people to use the electronic system which can be uh, monitored. And another reason, and this was a reason I recently read, and it might seem a bit out there, but from a macro point of view, it's really, really interesting. A lot of the cash has not been turned in. So right now, in 501,000 rupees, there were 14 trillion in circulation. 5.6 of those, they are not turned in yet. The way it works on the central bank's balance sheet is that when they're issuing cash, that's a liability. So all the money that is not cashed in, which will be a lot in any case, they can actually write that off on their balance sheet if they want to and have a cleaner balance sheet. So I kind of thought that was a very interesting thing to mention as well. Now, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this. Is this a wise choice, given what you have heard? or is it something that's really, really bad for the economy? So for instance, the investment banks right now, they're already talking about a 0.5% lower GDP growth in India this year, just because of this. How do you guys see the situation? Is it good or bad what's happening right now?
0: I just want to say something before I throw it over to Hari, because he's the guy that I really want to talk to about this but. I think it's really important for people to understand that I think that what's happening in India right now is much different than what the Larry Summers and that whole crowd is trying to do here in the US and maybe Europe and Japan with removing hard currency out of our system and just going straight to a digital currency. I think what's happening in India and that are two different things. I think what's happening in India is much more centered around the idea of removing corruption And getting the currency out of the hands of people that are, how do they refer to it, Hari? Is it dark money or black money? What do they refer to?
4: It's called black money.
0: Black money, yeah. All right, go ahead, Hari.
4: Cool. I think, Priston, you brought up a good point. So just to give everybody a bit of a background, the current government, Narendra Modi, his party was elected to power on the promise that they will cut down corruption and what you just referred to as black money and for people in us or the west probably they don't understand the impact of corruption and black money that is having on the society back in india and also the scale at which it is happening there so one example i can give you which kind of you know will probably help drive the point is when you buy a home in us you have escrow you have a real estate agent everything is transparent you take a loan in, and you buy the property. In India, when somebody buys a property, some of the sellers, and in what I've observed, is it's most of the sellers, they force you to pay, say, 40% or 30% officially. Like, you know, that's the white part of it. And the rest, 60 to 70%, you have to pay in cash. That's black. It's unaccounted for, which you will not disclose to the government. The seller would not disclose to the government. And that's a normal practice. And then I can go on and on about other examples. And that is crippling a lot of developmental efforts. And also it's impacting the middle class and the poor because they can't really afford to pay everything in cash because like you know the sellers wouldn't let you take a loan because they want some things in cash. So that's kind of you know a background about what's the situation there. Pristan you had a question.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following
1: message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corian has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C O R I E N T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs and Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs and Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at briggs-riley.com. That's briggs-riley.com. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service
0: I think the thing that's really interesting about how this all went down was how abrupt Modi basically put this out there in India. It was kind of like nobody had any clue that this was going to happen. And I don't know how you pull that off at that level (laughs) that that nobody knows that this is going to happen.
4: The way he did it is he came on television at 9 p.m. in the night and said by midnight, 1,000 rupees and 500 rupee denomination notes are invalid. So within three hours, they're invalid. Banks are obviously closed after nine, so nobody can go and exchange. But however, he has given time up till end of this year, it's almost 50 days, where folks can go to bank and exchange their 500 and 1,000 rupee notes with the new 2,000 rupee note and the new 500 rupee note. So when they say that they're taking... A money away from circulation that's not actually true they're actually printing new notes it is just that the old notes are going away from circulation and so people have obviously there are some restrictions where you can't just exchange everything you have if you want to do that you have to show how you got that money as long as you you're able to do that you can exchange however you can deposit all the money you have to a bank account there is no limit but of course you'll be audited later once you account so There are a couple of benefits apart from black money and eradicating corruption. And that is that a lot of currency in circulation in India is actually out of the main system, not in banks, and are not productive because they cannot be loaned to others. There is no economic activity. So one of the side effects that some of the experts are pointing to is that there will be more money or more cash in the bank. Which will help bring down the interest rates because they can lend more as well. So hopefully that will help in development activities. The other stuff like you know, counterterrorism is one other important aspect of this. A lot of not only terrorists but separatist organizations supposedly use a lot of cash to like you know bribe people or create miscreants stuff like that. And taking away the notes of these denomination, one of the side effects. That they are seeing is there is a lot less disturbance in many areas in India because of this move. So I guess he had to do it secretively, otherwise, it wouldn't be effective had it been announced ahead of time.
2: Yeah. And it is actually very secretive because one of the huge issues they have in India right now is that they don't have enough cash. And it's true what Hari is saying is that they're printing, they have four printing presses in India, but they can't print it fast enough compared to what they really need, which probably makes a lot of sense. Because when you tell that you need to print so-and-so much money, I guess some people somewhere must have to anticipate that it would be a problem. Another thing, and this was, it might seem like a bit anecdotal, but it's actually a real issue, is that it's really, really hard to break a 2,000 rupee note in India right now. I mean, how are you going to do that? The second biggest note, that's a 500 one, and, and people might not have that one either. So... It actually creates a lot of friction whenever you're still settling things in cash right now that the transaction costs, they're simply just too big. So it's definitely no joke, not just this year, but also the next year in terms of the expected growth, that a lot of things are simply not produced, a lot of things are not consumed because of this change. Whether or not it's the right decision is probably more like a political decision because there is definitely a lot of positive spillover effect. But I think it's very, very interesting. And it also relates back to our discussion about gold, is that you might not buy gold if you live in India because you want to grow your money. But if you are afraid that something like this will happen again, that might be where that you can store your value. So I just wanted to, to, to circle back to that very briefly.
3: I've got a question, Harry. So I. Right. Just when you told that story, I googled 1,000 Indian rupees. Is that right that that equates to about $15 US? That is correct, yes. And so a 500 rupee note is about $7, roughly half rounding down. So are those the biggest notes?
4: Those are the biggest notes. And now the 2,000 rupee note that has been released will be
3: the biggest note. Is the purchasing... So they're releasing a bigger note, a 2,000 rupee note? Yes. So in place, (laughs) of 1,000 they're releasing a 2000
4: rupee note and in place of the old 500 rupee note, they're releasing a new 500 rupee note. It just looks different. How does that solve the problem though? The way I believe the theory, I think Stig mentioned it in his opening is that the people who are allowed to exchange now, I mean, if you're exchanging your old notes with the new notes, or if you're going and depositing your money to the bank, you probably have the white money or The money that is not corrupt uh, earned through corruption, it's just not a black money. And there are news in Indian channels that I have seen where it seems a lot of people are just throwing away the old notes, whether it's 1,000 or 500 denomination, or burning them because they don't have any use of it now and they can't return it to the bank. So, however, there has been questions raised, as you exactly noted, that how does releasing a 2,000 rupee note solve the problem of corruption when we already had it with thousand rupee note. So that's something that we will have to wait and watch to see how it turns out.
0: Yeah, but I'm with Toby on this. So if they swap out the cash that's now registered. So like let's say I come in there with I don't know, whatever, we'll just say a, a thousand rupees and then they give me the new currency, which is cash. So yeah, you know that I just gave you the bank a thousand rupees, which I'll pay the tax on. But I'm only paying that one time because now I take that thousand rupees that I got and I can then give it to Toby and the government would never know that. And then Toby could give it to Stig and the government would never know that. So it's it's almost like it's a one-time tax on the swap of the cash. Like They need to convert it into a digital currency so that it can always be tracked at that point. That's where I think this is all going off the rails, but maybe I'm missing something. I might be totally missing something here.
3: Isn't there another, there's a money laundering arbitrage opportunity there, isn't there? What's to stop some guy going and buying some jewelry or gold or something that has a known value? Then I can go and find a guy who can't transfer his money legally and saying to him, guess what? I'll give it to you for 20 cents on the dollar or 10 cents on the dollar. That's better than burning it. And then I can go and exchange it and I can say, yeah, I bought the gold and I sold the gold. So, Yeah. Toby, I think that
4: was... (laughs) That was a very good point and there has been cases where people are trying to do such things however before they brought this demonetization policy into effect a few months back or probably a year back the indian government had imposed restriction on the amount of gold you can buy so if you're buying more than i don't remember the number exactly it might be hundred thousand rupees worth of gold, which is probably like $2,000. You have to report the source of your funds. You have to show your audited tax records. And also you have to present your, they call it the PAN card number, which is similar to our social security number and all other details. And it will all be tracked. So if somebody wants to do this arbitrage, it will be tracked. And in fact, what is happening now is, and one of the Investors I follow in India, it is Professor Sanjay Bakshi. He recently tweeted an article where the article describes how the Indian government is using data mining and data analysis because now everything is digital, everything is online, all the bank accounts are like, you know, in the system. And there is a sudden increase of tax rates in India, tracking a lot of such activities that you mentioned, and people are being caught. That's Another way that the government, I believe, was planning in a way, because a series of steps happened before the actual demonetization. Number one, the prime minister announced a scheme where poor people can open bank accounts without any minimum balance, and they got thousands of bank accounts opened through that. The second thing is they announced a one-time pardon people with black money where they can turn in their black money, pay hefty penalty of 80% or 85% of the value. I don't remember, but it's something really huge. But Take back the 10% back home saying, hey, this is white now, the rest is with the government now. And that expired on September 30th of this year, the deadline to pay a penalty and make your black money white. And then on November 8th, they announced this demonetization policy. So I believe the prime minister has said that he has more... Schemes coming after this. So this is like, it's a piece in a big jigsaw puzzle. So there is definitely a roadmap to eradicate corruption. And I believe from what I have studied so far, this is one of the steps in the many steps that the government of India is working on. From what I see, there have already been a couple of steps before.
0: All right, guys. Hey, this is all we have time for this week for our mastermind in the fourth quarter. I want to talk about something really quickly here. If you were listening to our show last year around the May timeframe, you would have heard us do an episode on attending the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. So we are doing this again this year. Toby Carlisle, he already got his plane ticket. He is going. Hari, I didn't ask you yet, but I know you're going, correct? Yes. Yes, yes he's going. Stig is not going to be able to make it this year, but I will be there. And we are really excited to uh, be hanging out with our audience. So we're going to have a link on our website. If you go onto our website and you look under About Us, there's a section in there that you can attend live events. In there, you're going to see a spot where you can sign up to go to the Berkshire Hathaway Shareholders Meeting. We will put out all sorts of information on how you do this. If you're curious how you can go, because you probably think you have to own an A share of Berkshire Hathaway, which is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's not true. You can actually attend the meeting by just owning a B share. And that's what, $150, $155 right now is the cost to own one B share of stock. And if you have that, you can go to the meeting. So if you want to go, and I'm telling you, this is the ultimate event. We did a pub crawl last year. We had about, I don't know how many people there. There was a lot of people, and it was the time of our lives. We had so much fun. If you like talking about value investing, you want to network. This is the ultimate networking event. I promise you, you want to be in Omaha. So we'll have information about that up on the site. We highly encourage you to go there and sign up because we'd love to see a whole bunch of you. And if you want to chat with guys like Toby or Hari or whoever, They're going to be there. So I'll make sure you guys make it on out.
2: Okay, guys, that was all that Hari, Toby, Preston, and I had for this episode of the Masters Podcast. We'll see each other again next week